Welcome, I'm Steve Wartenberg, and this is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. June is National Cancer Survivors Month, and there are more than 15.5 million cancer survivors in the United States. Today, we're going to talk to three of them, Rafe Pollack, David Carbone, and Electra Paskett. If their names sound familiar, it's because they've all been on this podcast before to talk about the great work they do here at the James. And after we finished these regular podcasts, they were kind enough to stick around for a while and talk about their cancer journeys, how it's changed their lives, how it's changed them as doctors and scientists, how it's changed them as spouses and parents, and how it's made them even more determined to help create a cancer-free world. We're going to start with Rafe Pollack, who is the director of the Comprehensive Cancer Center here at the James. Well, I, I ultimately learned about this diagnosis after undergoing an emergency splenectomy. Uh, my spleen uh, had enlarged acutely and massively uh, and was in danger of rupturing. Uh, and so we underwent this operation as an emergency. And after the operation, it was determined that part of the reason that the spleen had so rapidly grown in size was because it was infiltrated with uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia. So uh, I'm very fortunate that a close personal friend, Dr. John Bird, uh, whose clinic is immediately adjacent to mine uh, and with whom I had worked in a professional capacity uh, for a number of years while being here at Ohio State, uh, became uh, my personal physician. Uh, John is one of the top specialists in uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia in the country. In the world, yes, he, he's known all over the world for all this. over yeah. the world. He's uh, the best uh, among the very, very best, uh, and uh, has had a, a critical role in developing the drug abrutinib. Uh, which uh, is undergoing uh, continued evaluation at Ohio State in a clinical trial that I'm participating in. Uh, so, but, but initially, it has been FDA approved. Oh yes, the, and then this is like the phase, the second generation of the drug that you're right. That's, yeah, is, this is not the second. This oh, is still the first oh, generation the, okay. of the drug, um, but uh, it, it it is being looked at from a variety of different perspectives in order to develop prognostic markers in particular and learn more about predicting response to the drug. There are second-generation versions uh, that are being developed that will be undergoing clinical trial as well. Talk a little bit about just mentally, emotionally, when you hear those words and and have to, this life-changing moment. Well, it was a life-changing moment, and uh, when I was at MD Anderson, I did uh, most of the hematologic splenectomies uh, myself. Uh, It was uh, almost ironic. I've written two major manuscripts and one book chapter about the role of splenectomy in CLL. Oh, my goodness. 20 years earlier, uh, and then 20 years later, undergoing the procedure myself. Having cancer uh, adds a little bit of spice to life, uh, to say the least. Uh, It puts a little bit more urgency into how you spend your time. You recognize that there are even fewer guarantees about the future. And yet the advice that I give my own patients about not letting it take over your life uh, is a a bit of advice that I've tried to follow myself. Uh, 
so that I am able to do uh, what I want to do, uh, what I feel capable of doing in order to help other people. Where, where is your treatment at this stage? So I'm in a clinical trial looking at a brutinib. Uh, I'm tolerating the drug well, uh, although my my various parameters have not returned to normal. Uh, they are still significantly closer to normal than they were at the start of the trial, so I'm responding to the drug appropriately. Um, I do have some of the minor side effects uh, that uh, happen with with the drug, but nothing that would interfere with my being able to remain on the drug which is probably a commitment that I will be making for the rest of my life, uh, taking a brutinib. From what I understand about CLL, it's not something that's curable, but it can be treated on an ongoing long-term basis? That's, that's true in the majority of patients. There actually are a, a smaller percentage of patients um, who biochemically and in terms of their bone marrow are cured of their chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Um, but at this point, um, the, the majority of patients, if they respond to a brutinib, will stay on the drug uh, to suppress uh, uh, increased CLL activity for the rest of their life. So this was kind of a, um, I'm not sure of the right word, a, a, but great that you were here at the right place at the right time, your clinic next to John Bird, the developer of ibrutinib, and one of the top CLL people in the world. It was just... I mean, not that you ever want anyone to have this type of cancer, but you were at the right place. Uh, extremely fortuitous, and one of the reasons, uh, or yet another reason, why I am so grateful to this institution. How has it impacted how you deal with patients? Do you, any is it any different now? Uh, it is. It is different. Uh, I share the information uh, with my patients that I'm also a cancer survivor uh, or a cancer patient, uh, as well as a cancer provider. Uh, when my patients talk to me about cancer fatigue, I can relate to it very directly. I have also experienced that. Uh, and, and I think that in many ways it has brought me much closer uh, to my patients without in any way damaging or jeopardizing the doctor-patient relationship. My patients uh, appreciate uh, the level of trust that I put in that relationship by by confiding in them about my own illness and how I'm handling it, and I and I think they derive some comfort and occasionally some strength from from that awareness. So you're a little more than a year into your treatment, and you're on ibrutinib. You take that daily, and will be as you mentioned for years to come. Knock on wood. Uh, what is your your outlook on the future? Has it changed? Is it different now? Uh, it, it's. It's not uh, changed dramatically, but I am aware uh, that on the basis of a number of molecular prognostic factors, that my five-year survival rate is not 100%, that there is a percentage of patients who will develop uh, aggressive uh, disease that is not as amenable to therapy. Uh, and so it, it's imperative that I do the things that are important for me uh, in in the time that I have ahead, which is unpredictable. So living with a a newfound sense of of unpredictability is has been part of the 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 psychological adjustment uh, uh, to this chronic and occasionally lethal disease. What are some of the things that are now at the top of your list that you may have put off in the past? Well. Uh, 
probably the most pertinent is is with my work uh, and really trying to uh, move the uh, various agendas for the cancer center forward as quickly as possible. Um, I find that I I don't get as upset about some of the trivial hassles that perhaps at an earlier point before my illness uh, I might have responded to with with uh, uh, more uh, concern. Uh, uh, trying to um, help people uh, and uh, becomes that much more of an imperative and having a, a, an even more focused sense of what it is that I'm trying to do with my life uh, and how I can best uh, do that and accomplish that uh, as, as a reality, not just a theoretical construct. It sounds like in some ways um, being a cancer patient has reinforced everything you've worked your career for, the importance of moving the needle forward in research and treatment. Well, very much so, and and it actually in a strange way leaves me fortunate uh, uh, and, and certainly appreciative of this new status. Um, I don't fight it. I, I embrace it. We're going to take a short break, and then we'll be right back with David Carbone. Pelotonia is driven by their vision a world where we are all healthier and empowered to live our best lives, lives filled with hope and possibility. In only nine years, the Pelotonia community, through their annual cycling event, has raised more than $157 million to accelerate funding for innovative cancer research at the James. The Pelotonia community knows that when we push ourselves individually and as a community, we can achieve great things. As Pelotonia celebrates their 10th anniversary, Pelotonia wants you to be part of making this vision a reality. To learn how you can get involved, please visit Pelotonia.org. That's P-E-L-O-T-O-N-I-A.org. Let's change the world together. The lifetime odds of being diagnosed with cancer are 38.4%, according to the National Cancer Institute. This means we all know someone who has or will be diagnosed with cancer. About 1.7 million people in the United States will be diagnosed this year, and about 610,000 will die from cancer this year. These are pretty sobering statistics and why the research being done here at the James is so important. Next, we're going to talk with David Carbone. David is the director of the James Thoracic Center, and he's a lung cancer specialist. So I actually diagnosed myself back in May of 1999. Um, I um, was shaving one morning, and I noticed my neck veins were sticking out tight in my neck. And... Uh, in my medical training, I realized that a person with a normal heart under normal circumstances standing up, your neck veins should not stick out. And these were tense, and, and, uh, and I wasn't feeling well, and I immediately diagnosed myself as having what's called superior vena cava syndrome. And uh, I was what, what, what is that? That's when you have a big mass in the center of your chest that oh, obstructs the blood return uh. from the upper part of your body. And so when I got back from this meeting, uh, I uh, obtained a chest X-ray on myself, which showed a mass in my lung. But you did it? You did the X-ray yourself or you no, went well, to I, someone? No, I ordered it, and I went to the radiology department, and, and I got an X-ray. And you read the X-ray? Well, I always read all my own X-rays. So no one... 
read it and but said no, no, to the, you. The, but the radiologist also read it, but okay. I saw it as soon as it came out, and wow. I, and then I got a CT scan, and uh, it confirmed that there was a big mass that was wrapped around everything in the center of my chest and clearly unresectable, and then a, a mass in the lung. And I thought I had stage three lung cancer, locally advanced lung cancer. And at that time, I was a lung cancer medical oncologist, and I presented my own images at our thoracic tumor board, and I said, "This is me. Uh, what, uh, what, what do you guys think I should do next?" And obviously, it's it's a biopsy and staging uh, per, um, uh, procedures. And so I had I knew a thoracic surgeon very well. I said, "Would you take this spot out of my lung and figure out what's going on?" And then. He, he did that, and he went down in my mediastinum and did a biopsy of the mass in my chest. And it turned out to be a large cell lymphoma, not lung cancer, which was a relief in one respect, though the first paper I looked at uh, for mediastinal B-cell lymphomas that presented like mine, the series that I saw had a 17% five-year survival, which is even worse than mm-hmm. stage three lung cancer. Right. So how, how does that? How do you wrap your mind around that? What do you when you read that? Well, it was an experience that cancer patients go through every day, and that's um, that sudden change of priorities that you might say, or you could maybe it's a better analogy to say it's like stepping off a curb while you're texting on your iPhone and getting hit by a bus, you know. Uh, things in an instant change uh, dramatically, and I've I've spoken about this to other groups. But as a physician, I think I had um, I had it harder, and I had it easier in that situation. Harder because you you know all the things that could go wrong. Harder because I knew I know and knew how ugly cancer can be yeah. in the end, uh, and easier because. I knew all the vocabulary. I wasn't learning a foreign language when most patients are. And I I knew physicians I could go to and trust with my life where most patients are thrust into a clinic with an oncologist they've never met and are trusting this guy with their lives. We're going to take a short break, and then we'll be back to talk to Electra Paskett. A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the James. We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer, yours. At the James, we go beyond the routine to prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066. One of the things I've learned over the years talking to cancer patients is that this is obviously a terrible, horrible disease, and yet cancer seems to bring out the best in people. Courage, strength and kindness, generosity, and appreciation for your family and friends and for life. I think we just heard all of that and a lot more from Rafe and David, and now we're going to learn more of these same lessons from Electra Paskett. Electra is the director of the Division of Cancer Prevention and Control here at the James. 
So I was diagnosed uh, for the first time with breast cancer when I was 40 years old. And my youngest son was two years old. Wow. And uh, I had gone in for a routine mammogram. Um, my mother had two primary breast cancers, and her mother had um, breast cancer. So I always knew that eventually I would develop breast cancer, but not at age 40. And they, uh, they were diagnosed much later? Yes. Okay. My mother, like 65 and early 70, and my grandmother in her 60s. Uh, my grandmother died of a massive heart attack, nothing to do with breast cancer. And my mother, um, actually, the two breast cancers were her second and third cancer. She had a cervical cancer when she was young. And then the two breast cancers, and she died of pancreatic cancer, actually. Wow. Died 10 days after she was diagnosed. So, so because there was so much cancer on that side of the family, did you think there was an inherited genetic mutation? So my father died of colon cancer. So mm. we've, I've got it on both sides. And I have been tested for every gene possible oh. for breast, colon, pancreatic, and nothing. Okay. So uh, as of yet, we don't have the ability to identify any genetic predisposition that I have to cancer. So it might just be a horrible statistical anomaly. Well, I still think it's genetic. We but just we just, we haven't, just haven't discovered, discovered it yet. Yeah. Yes, okay. yes, that makes sense. And so um, you were diagnosed. I was at diagnosed 40. diagnosed at age forty. I had a lumpectomy and radiation therapy. I had axillary node dissection, had eight nodes removed, but I developed lymphedema in my um, hand. That's swelling. Swelling. And so I then um, had to wear a, a glove and a sleeve. And I was like, what in the world is this? You know, I have breast cancer. Why do I have this with my arm? So that led me to... Um, and now 21-year uh, study of lymphedema. And uh, we actually have done a, a randomized controlled trial to try to prevent lymphedema. And so that's that's been really exciting because really you can count maybe on two hands how many lymphedema researchers there are. Not many. So it's and, a very interesting. lymphedema understand. is when the lymph nodes are removed and they're the, like the, the body's draining system and when they're removed, it can cause swelling, swelling and, in your pain. Ar- and pain in your arms and in your yes. legs, right? Okay. Yes. Wherever lymph nodes are, are yeah. even removed or, or irradi- irradiated or damaged or anything. So that's one area that, you know, really has benefited research-wise from, you know, my diagnosis. The second is that, uh, you know, I do studies in the community to try to get women to get breast cancer screening. And so I know the importance of getting mammograms because the mammogram that found my tumor, I mean, my tumor was about the size of the the tip of my little finger. It was not palpable. You couldn't feel it. So really, mammography works. So finding it early for you improved your outcome tremendously. That's right. I'm still here. Yeah. Because, well, we don't want to speculate but if you hadn't but right okay right so right. thank goodness right so i developed a recurrence in my axilla um recurrence four years cancer. later of the breast cancer and the axle that's the, the, the armpit. armpit right it felt like a really hard pee in in here and um so i had to have surgery again to remove all the axillary nodes on my right side and then i had um six rounds of chemotherapy 
and uh, another six weeks of radiation therapy from more uh, for higher up because you can't irradiate the same area again. You so it was uh. more higher toward the neck and, and my back. And then was on aromatase inhibitors. And during the chemotherapy, I developed um, cardiotoxicity to, from the epirubicin that I was given, one of the chemotherapy agents. So what that means is some of my heart cells were killed from the chemotherapy. And cardiotoxicity is another area back then that was just gaining sort of... Um, uh, steam. In fact, uh, I was still at Wake Forest University. This was before I came to Ohio State. And the researcher there, I was actually in a clinical trial uh, of looking at my heart. So I would get an echo before each of my chemotherapy uh, rounds, and they actually found uh, abnormality. And then I had to have another cardiac MRI. And the person who did the cardiac MRI said, we can see that some of the cells in your heart have died. We don't know what that means. We don't know if they'll grow back or if you, the rest of your heart will overcome this. We don't know. We, we're just starting in this field. Um, so now, uh, you know, we know a lot more about cardiotoxicity, and it's really a, a, a hot area that's being studied. And this right is a now. side effect from chemotherapy. It's a side effect from that chemotherapy. The chemo not, well, kills a lot of things, cancer cells. It also right. kills cells in the heart. Wow. Okay. You're right. The chemotherapy, um, a lot of times, is not specific to just the cancer cells. That's why the hair falls out, right. is it's, because it, 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 it targets rapidly growing cells. And your hair is one, one area that's rapidly growing, as, as well as cancers. And then you had one more recurrence? I did. Um, same breast. And that was also detected by mammography. So, What year is this? That was seven and a half years ago. So you were here at mm -hmm. Ohio State? I was State here Bank? at Ohio okay. State. And so I had a double mastectomy. and Just to, so that there's no chance of it coming. I'm exactly back, okay, right. Because enough already. Enough already. Yeah, Three can, times well, is enough yeah, already. More than enough. Yeah. Yes. Wow. So been cancer-free since, knock on wood. Yes, I do that too. I always have to, yes. So right. how is this... Obviously, it's impacted you and and so many changes. But how has it changed your life? How has it changed you as as a as a population scientist? I'm not sure this necessarily changed me as a population scientist. I think that when I um, provide opinion or perspective on things, I do have the ability to take into account the patient's viewpoint um, on a lot of things. But um, a lot of times my opinion is being asked as a scientist, um, not necessarily as an advocate. So if, if I want to give it as an advocate, I'll say, okay, I am now putting on my patient advocate hat. <laughs> okay. And I think as an advocate, such and such, right? But, um, you know, I, I always think, also think that I'm able to help a lot of people other people. So I've talked to a lot of other women who have had breast cancer and um, tell them sort of what to look for. Uh, people who have symptoms of lymphedema, try to get them in for appropriate care. 
uh, things like that. So, and and I like to think that perhaps I can give hope to people who have breast cancer to know that I'm a 21 year survivor. Oh, you definitely not only are giving people hope, but you're an advocate to help people detect early and and increase their odds of survival. That's, that's right. That's amazing. That's right. That's and, right. Because I, I know you, as a population scientist, you're always aware of and and 100% for screenings, vaccinations, but I, I, now it, perhaps it's even more important. That's right. So I guess, you know, I've, it's it's sort of become part of the fabric of my life, and it's, it's a little hard to tease it out, but... Really, you know, if I can help people get, for example, the HPV vaccine or get colonoscopy or colon cancer screening to right. actually find a polyp and remove it, which is prevented a cancer, you know, that that's a, a million, billion times better than actually being diagnosed and having to go right. through cancer. So, and I know that firsthand. I'd like to thank Rafe, David, and Electra for sharing their cancer journey stories. As you just heard, they're amazing doctors and human beings and have dedicated their professional lives to helping others. As I mentioned at the start of this podcast, all three have been on previous episodes, so check them out and learn more about Rafe, David, and Electra and the important work they do here at the James. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.